0: We are so glad that you are here. Um, When I mentioned that idea of a completed project, I I really meant it. Um, And let me share what happened. Uh, More than a decade ago, a certain man in our church uh, uh, had had many accomplishments in his life. Uh, He was a ski instructor in an earlier age. And also a, a scratch golfer, golf instructor. And uh, he was so good that every year he got two weeks down in uh, Arizona to test new equipment. Uh, everything paid for uh, by the uh, groups like Callaway and, and others. Well, early in the, you know, the aught thousands between 2000 and 2005, he looked at me and he said, Jim, let me help you be a better skier and golfer. So I answered back, you're on. And uh, he made the challenge and I accepted it. So that winter, because he had made the challenge in winter, uh, we w- skied three times together. And he took me to the, uh, the, the uh, Mogul double black diamond and back bowl slopes that I had never dreamed of going on myself. And I must admit in those three times, I got better. I mean, I'm not great, but I got better. And I, I could honestly thank him for that. We went golfing once, and he realized not even God can make Jim a good golfer. Uh, so he finally said, you know, Jim, you're a project that's beyond me in terms of helping you drive a straight ball. And we gave that up. But I still look back and say, Here is a person who knew how to teach somebody one-on-one and make them better. You know, as I go and plan for my retirement, I'll be saying, you know, there's new projects that I want to do. I'll be doing um, uh, uh, maintenance jobs at home more than I've done before. I'll be repairing things at home more than I've done before. Hopefully remodeling things at home that I haven't been able to do before. And some of that involves picking up power tools. So Barb is already in deep intercession because power tools and ladders and I do not get along. But I dare you to say, Jim, I can teach you how to lay that hardwood floor and I'll take the challenge. Or Jim, we can fix those broken electrical outlets without doing you bodily harm or burning down your house. I dare you to dare me and let me become your project and me your piece of work. You know, for some of us, our identity is wrapped up not in what we accumulate, but what we accomplish. It is fine to accumulate things. It is fine to increase your bank accounts and your, and your, and your uh, net worth. That's nothing wrong with that. But some of us also look at why have we gotten done? We're doers. You know, when Israel was looking for its Messiah, there was a long list of things that this person would do. The Old Testament, especially prophets like Isaiah, would list this is what he will be like and this is what the Messiah will do. So in Jesus' first public appearance, he goes to a synagogue on a Saturday and he reads Isaiah 61. And as he reads it, he's claiming this prophecy is now fulfilled in him. In other words, I'm going to be doing, proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. I'm going to be doing what you are anticipating. So for the next three years, Jesus does exactly what the Messiah is supposed to do. But people, especially the Jews, who know these prophecies, refuse to believe even though they see what he is accomplishing the good work that he is doing. I want to take us back now to understand there have been a whole series of things that Jesus is doing and saying that points to the fact that not only should the Jews believe him as the Messiah, but we should believe him as God's son. It all begins as we were looking at uh, about three weeks ago, the religious leaders had come out of Jerusalem and gone to the Sea of Galilee And they were talking to him and confronting him, the fact that he was not, before he entered a house, ceremonially, not not hygienically, but ceremonially washing his hands because he might have been spending time with Gentiles in the marketplace. So Jesus answers that fact that he doesn't wash before he enters a house, and he points to their legal and moral hypocrisies with the result of them becoming more resentful toward him. Now, that might be hard to understand, how dare you criticize the Son of God. And I'm certainly not in that category, but I know that when people come and tell me to shape up and get better at this, whether it be skiing or golfing, uh, when they say you're not doing a good job here, my first response is not to look at them and say, oh, gee, thanks, that's just what I needed. (sighs) Finally, someone's going to speak into my life that I'm failing somewhere. You know, I, my first response is, who died and made you king? My first response is, I know some things about you, too. You want to hear those? Now, I realize that you're all far more mature than me, and you would never think those things, but that's what I think. So he, I want to strike back. Jesus, in, in addition to uh, intensifying the opposition also performs five miracles that point to him being being the son of God. He calms a storm with only two words. He uh, raises a dead daughter. He expels multiple demons. He feeds 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes. And, and, And then to top all that off, he walks on water to bring aid to his disciples. In all of these, his fame only increases... And people want him to be their king because that's what they think a Messiah should be. So as his fame increases, uh, and and the gospel of John says that after he fed the 5,000, people were rushing to him. They wanted to put him on their shoulders and take him to Jerusalem and give him a crown and proclaim him king. They were hoping that what he would do, this king and the Messiah would do, would be to throw out the Romans. And while he's at it, he would slay all the unrighteous, restore justice and he would rule from Jerusalem. And while he's at it, why not make my neighbors clean up their backyard? It's just that Jesus is not that type of Messiah yet. He will be when he returns, but not in this time that he had on earth. So as his disciples track with him, and as we see uh, what Mark has written down, understand that they are piecing together what I call A portfolio of experiences that they have had with Jesus that point to him fulfilling that passage of Isaiah 61. In other words, as they have walked with him and they've said he's done this, 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 and this, which they have reported and he has said this, this, and this, this is what the Messiah would be like. So uh, on that Saturday in that synagogue and when he reads Isaiah 61 regarding the Messiah, they are now piecing it together saying, this is why Jesus is that Messiah. And you see, we are the same. We do get a portfolio about Jesus in terms of the classes we will attend. The content that will be taught to us. The books that we will read. We, we understand that. We need input into our minds. And we remember a lot of it. But in addition to the classroom learning, we also learn through experiences that he takes the disciples through and that he takes us through today. So I want you to watch now as we go to Mark chapter 7, verses 31 and beyond, and then later to Mark chapter 8, and watch how the disciples add to the Jesus portfolio and try to make a connection with What is it that Jesus is doing then with these people that he's doing currently also in me? You see, it's a new challenge that he's facing. Um, He has changed his location and he's now among the Gentiles near the Sea of Galilee. And he's with those, you might say, who do not worship Yahweh. Uh, They may be pagans, but they're not idiots. So they know of Jesus' reputation and when he comes to town, they throng to him. And one of those was a man who was both deaf and impaired in speech. We don't think it was from birth, so he wasn't a complete mute. But uh, maybe it's something like this. One of the friends that I hope to visit when we return to Australia in, in October, uh, one of those friends uh, came to Christ through much opposition in, in his family as a high schooler. And uh, yet he, he kept the faith, he kept on growing. And well after we left, he went on college... Uh, he, he, He studied law, and while he was a law student at university, he went on a mission trip. And it was on the mission trip, serving Jesus Christ, that he got an ear infection where he lost hearing in both ears. Wait a minute, you're supposed to be rewarded. Not punished. So even today, when he speaks, it's somewhat impaired... Because he has not had decent hearing for decades. Now the man we're looking at here is worse. Uh, <clears throat> let me read from um, uh, Mark chapter seven. Then Jesus left the vicinity I mean, in verse 31, vicinity of Tyre, and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis, that means ten cities, but uh, it also means it's a region where the Jews do not rule. There's Jews there, but it's run by um, uh, non-Yahweh worshipers. Okay? There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Again, probably not from birth. And they begged him to place his hands on the man. Well, that's the new challenge. Like my friend Richard uh, uh, Now this person is brought to Jesus and they are pleading with him, please do something. Now, uh, two things to notice. The first is that he has a severe impediment, both hearing and speaking. The second thing is he doesn't come alone. This is about the fourth time in the Gospel of Mark where he's brought by friends. In other words, you know, he hears that Jesus is coming, he... Sorry, he doesn't hear, but he knows that Jesus is coming. And he does nothing. Like, oh, I don't want to bother him. I, you know. He does nothing. But his friends come and say, you're coming with us. And they, you might say, drag him, drag their needy friend to Jesus. And they beg Jesus, please lay your hands on him. We may not be Yahweh worshipers, but we hear what you have done. And Jesus does even more than they ask. Uh, I was told soon after I became a Christian that there was a group of my peers that got together every Sunday morning before church, and they prayed for a list of people, and one of them was Jim De Three of those people were from my high school, and one was my older brother. And uh, they grew tired in praying for me, and I grew very skilled in knowing how to avoid church but somehow they won out. More than that, it didn't take me long once I finally stepped in to realize there's something in this Jesus that I need to discover. There's something in these people also that I want to know what they've got. So it wasn't too long before I became a Christian. And uh, when I did, then I heard the story. So when I became a Christian, of course, something God did a work in me, but the biggest smiles were probably these people who can say, God answers our prayers. And I just want you to know that in our growth groups and in our homes, may I suggest that you pray together for people, that you, uh, <clears throat> that you don't drop them, but you keep on praying until you get a definite answer. Faith grows especially as people together as a whole group, will not give up, but are persistent until they get the answer and they bring or drag somebody to Jesus. And I'm one of those. I'm one of those pieces of work. Well, now look how Jesus works on this person. In verse 33, it says, after he took him aside, in other words, here he is surrounded by his friends. Jesus takes him away And it's one-on-one with him. After uh, after he took him aside from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ear, then spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, which means be opened." One word, two gestures, is all it takes for the Son of God. And I think those two gestures... Were meant for the deaf man more than anybody else. Do you see how Jesus operates? First, the fingers are put in his ears to signify they're going to be opened up. Uh, secondly, saliva is put on Jesus' saliva is put on his tongue. Ew, ooh, ooh, ooh. I know what some of you are thinking. And there's no healing in his saliva. Okay, that isn't the issue. But it's a gesture for his benefit. And then he looks up to heaven because God is his source. And he sighs, showing his emotional involvement. And then with one word, in our language, two words, open up. And that's it. His hearing returns, his speech flows. It's normal again. It says, at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Have you ever seen the YouTube videos of of a toddler who gets those implants and can hear for the first time? You see the hugest smile and, and the greatest uh, um, like, wow, I've ne- this hasn't worked before. Uh, it's all over YouTube and, and uh, go on it and look at it for yourself because the, the sign of joy of suddenly hearing sound is amazing. Well, this man, it's restored. And it's a miracle. And it's not just a show of great power. But the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, is healing completely, immediately, sensitively, and compassionately. At the end of this miracle, if you were one of those friends, you'd be asking, who is this man? Who is he? So they come to a conclusion in verse 37. It says, the people were overwhelmed with amazement and they make this statement about him. You see, the question, who is he, is the question that's been asked all through the ages since Jesus came. It's the question that is answered by Mark in in the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, people may not believe that this Jesus is God's son, but if you read what he has accomplished, you'll have to at least admit he is special. And his power to heal has not been seen since the days of Elijah by the Jews. And his passionate love for his creation has not been seen since the Garden of Eden. So the crowd, which does not worship Yahweh, has to confess that this is a God thing, a Yahweh thing that they have now witnessed. And it probably moves them to say, maybe I ought to rethink my situation. Reconsider my lack of faith. So listen to their words. They are deeply impressed with Jesus without claiming his deity. Their words are this. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. He does all things well, says one of the translations. He does all things well. Does Jesus do all things well in your life? Or are you his only exception? Can you, as some of you have told me, well, he seems to be working here and working there, but he's not working much for me. That, I think, typifies many disappointed Christians that I know. You see, all things well does not mean all things instantaneously. I'd like you to go forward with me and go to chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, there is another situation. And it it is so different than every other miracle, not in terms of who he heals, but how he heals, that, that it is worth noting. And it sort of answers that question, does he do all things well for you? It says in verse 22 of chapter 8, they came to Bethsaida, which means house of fish, and some people brought a blind man and, and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village where he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. And then Jesus asked him a question. Well done does not mean all things instantaneously. So as we go forward to see him now at this small city. This small city is just where the Jordan, it's on the east side of the Jordan, which is where the Jews don't go. Um, So it's on the east side of the Jordan, right where it enters the Sea of Galilee. And of course, that's where fish spawn. Any of you fishermen would know that. Um, So this time it is a blind man. And just like his last miracle, his friends bring the blind man And beg Jesus again to touch him. I mean, it is so similar, isn't it? It sounds so familiar. So again, Jesus takes this blind man away from the crowd like he did the deaf man. And treats him like an honored individual and is sensitive towards his blindness. He spits again, ew, on his eyes. Because it is the focus of his treatment. It is where he wants to heal the man. And he lays his hands on him as a symbol of his divine power. And so after that, uh, something happens that you won't, happen, you won't see happen anywhere else. After that, he asks a question. And, and this makes it very confusing. We're going to work through why this is a little hard to take. He asks the question, do you see anything? Why is the Son of God asking someone he just healed if it took Of course it took. I'm Jesus. It should have happened instantaneously. But the answer comes, and it's a little hard for some of us to absorb. I see people, says the blind man, or formerly blind man, or half-blind man. They look like trees walking around. You see, he can see, but not completely, not fully restored. Some of you have told me about your eyesight both before and after your cataract surgery. You say the difference is amazing. Well, there's something about this man's response that makes us ask questions. Notice that Jesus then puts his hands on him again. And now it says he can see normally. He sees everything clearly. So here's the question. I ask you, let's see if you can answer, because I've also asked five renowned scholars. Why does Jesus heal a deaf mute with one word, and the crowd says he does all things well, but this time he has to touch a blind man twice? Why? That's what the scholars told me, too. See, I've looked and I've looked and I've looked. Why two touches instead of one? Why does the Son of God Almighty have to restore this man's sight with two touches? Why doesn't the first touch take if he does all things well? And after reading them, I just want you to know that here is their answer, we do not know. Wait a minute, I bought your book. You're, I'm, <laughs> you're supposed to know. And then I can look at you and say, ah, I also do not know. It wasn't out of his control. Then he wouldn't be the son of God if it was. It had something to do with his sovereign choice. But the end is the same. He can look at people clearly. The two touches might have some parallels going on in your life right now. Consider this. As I have imperfectly followed Jesus Christ for the last 52 years, I have some moments of amazement in my life. I've had phone calls that have come just at the right time. From a friend that said, I, I, I need to tell you this. I've had checks come in the mail to help us pay our bills. I've had letters of affirmation come to me when I was just about ready to call it quits. I've had books that have answered my questions before I was even asking them. I've had lectures that have set my life's direction. Uh, I've listened to other pastors' messages whom I do not know, but they spoke to my immediate need. And I just happened to them. And yes, I've had the famous tap on the shoulder that says, excuse me, do you have a moment? We can chat. And that little excuse me changed the trajectory of my life. I have seen God do things not just well, but amazingly well, beyond all of my expectations. But that's not all the time. Most of God's work in my life comes gradually Through a second, third, fourth, infinitesimal touches. I have to read the whole book. I have to listen to the whole lecture. I have to go to the whole class and I have to pay for the class and take the test. I pray for months or years waiting for an answer that I do not get. I have sat in my office and have people come in and tell me about all the wonderful things that God is doing. And, and, and I, I bite my tongue because two years earlier they sat in my office and I said, this is what God wants to do. And they walked away not even listening to me. I overcome sin very slowly. I grow in faith like a little baby when she takes her first steps. I return to my same failures far too often after saying, I'll never do that again. I know I'm forgiven, but I also know that my character changes rarely and not fast enough. I know I'm indwelt by God's spirit, therefore I should expect big things. But why can't I be more like the deaf mute with one touch? than the blind man with two. I thought about this all week. Thought about it before when I read the Gospel of Mark. I have uh, listened to Christian scholars and to therapists who say, or when I ask the question, why why is my spiritual growth so slow? And uh, the answer is a very simple one. We don't know. I don't know. I know there's resistance in me. I know that God continues to work and he does not give up on me. But I often go back to a promise that was made to a church under deep pressure. And Paul, as he's writing it, he had been there, he had had spent time in the jails there like he did most of the places where he planted churches. And and Paul, so as he's there, he he reflects back to these uh, Philippians and he gives this word. I am confident in this, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me put it another way, the way I learned it. He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect it until Christ Jesus returns. That is what God is doing. That is a promise. No, I don't know. But I do know this. The pace of God's work does not equal the perfection of God's work. They can be very different. I wrote this down differently and in the last minute. I changed it, okay? The pace of God's work does not equal the perfection of God's work. He will continue to perform it. So I have to say, as far as I know, God is not throwing me out of my house for my slow progress. And also, as far as I know, I'm not turning my back on him because his work does not fit my timetable. He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it. A second touch, a third touch, a millionth touch, but he is working on you and you are his piece of work. So let's pray. And I wanna pray right now for the disappointed Christians or the defeated Christians. I want you to understand that God is working. And you are his piece of work. You may not agree with the pace of his work. It may seem infinitesimally slow. You may be disappointed. But I want you to understand this This interim moment, even in this very moment where you sense he doesn't seem to be at work. It is also a discipleship moment for you. And he's calling on you to exert through his influence in the Holy Spirit. A will that will continue to trust and obey him. Father, not just the disappointed, not just the confused, but even those of us who appear in so many ways to have life together can probably confess, we've given up on some of these things where the answer just seemed to be no. I want you to reconsider that maybe the answer is just not yet, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And that you would promise him that you will continue to look for his work in whatever that request would be. Many of us here look at certain times and moments in which God just overwhelmed us it's the same God and he will continue to do his work until the day of Christ Jesus. Claim that now in Jesus great and mighty name and God's people said Amen. Let's stand.